podcast is brought to you by Enrollment Resources, Innovations in Enrollment Management. Learn more at enrollmentresources.com. So, hi folks, I'm uh, Greg Meeklejohn, co-founder with Enrollment Resources, and with me is my business partner, fellow co-founder Shane Sparks. Uh, we've been in business since 2003, and our uh, overall um, mandate is to help schools improve performance, improve conversion rate, and the way by which we do that is to help people pursue the truth and help them uh, just sort of walk away from delusion and and move towards what's true for them. And, and there's a variety of ways we do that. One of the ways we do that is by creating um, these little conference calls where we just sort of speak uh, to, to topics from our perspective and invite conversation if you're interested. So our topic today, Shane, is about what happened at ABSCU. And the reason we thought this would be an interesting little talk because is because ABSCU, they put a lot of effort into um, reading the tea leaves and seeing where things are heading in terms of the uh, industry and the conference is a good little representation of how they're perceiving things so and what goes on so what are you what were your overall thoughts about how this conference went and and what happened yeah you know it's interesting Greg and just for the sake of anyone on the call might not know who Absq is uh, Absq is the National Career College Association in the US and so they represent a, kind of a national sampling of schools, uh, career college schools, throughout uh, the U.S. Um, you know, it was, I've been reflecting on this for the last day or so, and uh, just to prep for this, and I, I don't know if I came away with any, like, specific theme, which in itself I thought was interesting. Like there certainly there was lots of chatter about regulations. There was lots of chatter about, uh, oh, you know, we're down, and oh, but everybody's down, which was kind of like the default excuse for being down. Um, and certainly, you know, we're going to get into some of these specific points as the half hour progresses. But I, I, I came away with maybe a malaise. Was the best word to describe it. Now, Shane, uh, are you sure the malaise wasn't a a hangover? It could have been. Now, the thing is, I think think as I reflected on this conference as well, I I think that um, what I came away with is that people are in, have been beaten down by these uh, regulatory bodies for so long and from so many directions. that um, I think people are now playing a game of they're playing a game of not to lose versus winning, and from perspective, proprietary schools have so much to offer in terms of you know standards for completion and standards for placement and uh, practical um, uh, career uh, um, education paths and so many things going for it, and these people are just playing not to lose and. I think it's uh, I think it's really uh, coming off of. I'm just going to say my, my what I feel, and that is the there's a little handful of publicly traded um, 
proprietary schools where the securities law and the education law don't rub up very well against one another, and it's creating all kinds of toxic behavior and friction and, and byproduct, which is dragging everybody else down. I don't know. What do you think yeah. of that? Is that a crazy comment? Or? Uh, no, not at all. I think that's uh, a, fair, a fair comment. And I'll tell you one thing that one tidbit that someone had mentioned offhand that I thought was really a great way to reframe this. And it came from somebody's talk, and I apologize to whoever gave the talk because I don't remember who it was. But uh, Shane, just hold your thought. I'm, I'm going to be muting out everybody again. There's some ambient noise in the back here, so just um, stand by. Okay. Okay. There, go ahead. And so it was to reframe it from the proprietary, the for-profit schools being for-profit and reframe it for them being not for loss. And yeah. I, I really liked that as a notion because, you know, the, the notion, the, the idea of profit is just one of those words that creates, um, can create conflict and, and create a misrepresentation of what the sector is really about. And the not for loss, I felt like, reframed the public sector is a money-losing, um, uh, you know, a consumer of resources, not a, a creator of, uh, of um, uh, prosperity. Mm -hmm. So I, I like that one. Yeah, I, yeah. not-for-profits, they run on operating surpluses, and they use terms like cost recovery. And um, uh, it's really just... Um, Calling something by a different name, so I I think um, the the the, the uh, proprietary sector is starting to get beaten down. We noticed there were like three vendors for every school person at this particular uh, rendition of Absku. That was really weird, wasn't it? It was, and I at the time we were surprised by how low the attendance was against historical. I, I think we've come to understand why that is now in the, the subsequent weeks after the conference, with um, partly with Corinthian basically going bankrupt and uh, ITT having some troubles. So it seems like uh, one of the reasons for the declining attendance was the corporate schools, these publicly traded schools that have, um, I don't know, have had their own challenges both for them and, and have, I think, um, catalyzed challenges for the rest of us, uh, they weren't in attendance. And so they uh, presumably had to know this was coming down even before the conference. Yeah, you, you don't spend $200,000 taking a couple hundred employees to a conference when, you, uh, uh, when you've been given the ticket to go out of business. And, and there are a number of other schools that are not are in a similar bind and they're just reducing expenses everywhere. And I guess that's really solid business, but it's, it is a reflection of what's going on out there. What happens uh, with Corinthian and ITT and, and most likely others as they start to, um, you know, devolve and, uh, and break down their empires um, and start selling off their pieces and closing schools down. H how does that play out in your view uh, in terms of you know, what happens as a byproduct of that? Because that really, I think, is really the elephant in the room at this particular conference. Um, 
So let's just cut to it. What happens with, with when that plays out? Well, yeah, uh, it'd be interesting. I, I think if you're a uh, uh, if you own a school, you can expect a lot more sales calls from marketing vendors because there's you, you got to think there's about a what a two hundred a two hundred million dollar media buy that is in in the process of being wound down right now with Corinthian. So there's two hundred million dollars, whatever they spend, you know, close to that, uh, that was currently being spent on leads and marketing companies and God knows what, that is now out of the market. So somebody is suffering as a result of that, and they're going to look to make up revenue somewhere. Yeah, and I think that'll be um, one. Just two sec, Shane, um, folks. I'd like you just to press star six on your phone, please. Um, the 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 mute for everybody doesn't seem to be working that well, and we're hearing some ambient noise, so. Shane, do you have a radio in the background? No? No, I don't. I'm on my cell phone. That might be a... Okay. I, I think we're fine. Um, so, yeah, and, and I think, so there's a media buy. We also spoke to some headhunter folks at the show, and they've got apparently huge inventories of people who are looking for work right now. Um, and so, of course, that's an obvious byproduct is tens of thousands of people get laid off. Um, and I yeah. guess, really, there, there's, um, you know, perhaps uh, 150, 200,000 students that were being sopped up by the corporate schools that are now going to be still looking for uh, the, the, the education demand, the education fervor has not left their belly. They're still wanting to improve their lives. They still want to improve the quality of their lives. Um, yet, there um, there are some fewer options, and so I guess these students either go to uh, another proprietary school or they go to a community college. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yeah. So I, you know that should be good for the rest of us in some ways. I would um, think, yeah. Yeah, I think p part of the long-term consequence of this, and it's, you know, maybe not absolutely specific, but one of the long-term consequences is that the, the regulatory environment, at least from my perspective, has emerged as it is, partly in response to uh, large corporate schools that were, I call them boardroom schools, right? You know, decisions are made about maximizing profitability, not necessarily what's in the best interest of the consumer. And so it's created regulation, which we're all having to suffer through. Um, the regulation is probably not going to go away, even if the corporate schools go away. And so, uh, you know, the long-term consequence can be hard for all of us. See in business. That's absolutely right. And, um, and I guess the byproduct is that um, what we're looking at here, folks, is that the... As Shane said, regulations are not going to disappear now. Um, the state of Massachusetts have now are proposing legislation where students can be um, contacted by a given school no more than two times a week, uh, either by email, text, uh, or phone. Um, that's another curtailment. It's it's just coming in from all sides and all levels, and and so I think when you have enough regulation people um, beating on you, there's a point in time where it's wise to no longer adopt the stance of a victim. 
and it's no longer um, wise to sit back and uh, and just uh, complain because stuff is being done to you. And I think that was the theme of our our talk that we gave at Abscuchain, and that was, you know, you're really the only path out from this regulatory mess is to create a world class offering, exceed the expectations of students at all times so that the regulators can't even get a sniff of you. Um, you know, you can't can't um, bitch if you have a stellar offering, right? Well, yeah, that's that's very true. And I think to Epsky's credit, they're, the tone they're taking as an organization is along those lines. Like, this, this typically at the conference, there's a whole tract of talks that are related to admissions and marketing. So they're really, how, you know, how do we enroll more people kind of talks. And this conference, they, they shut down those talks altogether. So there wasn't any real marketing or admissions related talks. Yeah, and, um, I, yeah, and I think, um, our talk was, um, I, I just remember it was just, um, one guy came up to us and said, I need some meat. All I'm getting here is fear uh, about dealing with government. I need some meat. I need a pathway out. And uh, I remember that guy specifically. And uh, and we, I think we did a good job of really drawing out ways and ideas in which we can um, go in and and uh, as an industry create amazing. Um, results and my definition of that is to exceed expectations expectations exceed them and when when student prospective students are happy they don't complain they don't draw the interest of 60 minutes and they don't draw the interest of regulators because they're happy and when you're happy then there's no reason to be sad and so in that regard I think students just that's the job going forward. It's a, marketing doesn't work, advertising doesn't work, placement doesn't work. If you have a crappy product, you you cannot polish a turd, right, Shane? Yeah, no, that, that's right. And and so I think the, the the schools that appear to be succeeding right now, you know, the ones that are that are are not, you know, talking about oh, we're down this year, but everyone's down, kind of, I don't say making excuses, but. Um, uh, maybe resigned to um, there being a downturn. The schools that aren't experiencing that right now, largely, are schools that have understood that the product, you know, what they deliver and the value that they give to their consumers, uh, is intrinsically tied into marketing and admissions, and that you know, fundamentally, at the center of everything, at the center of any business, is what you offer your product. That's exactly so, right. Greg, I'm just going to call back in on the line to see if I can minimize no, the noise. No, no, Shane. I think I figured out the issue on the audio. So you keep no. talking, entertaining our folks, and we'll get this background audio fixed in 60 seconds. Just uh, keep going. Wonderful. Okay. So, you know, I think the the in, in walking the room, and, and there, were two, there were two talks that uh, we were involved in, one was on uh, called netiquette. It was basically what are the best practices around communicating to students. 
There was a, a fascinating new stat that came out of that from Velocify on um, when and where to leave uh, voicemail messages. And so this was a new piece of research I had just came across at this conference. And Hi, Shane. It's Greg again. Hey, I'm just sharing with uh, folks what we learned from Velocify, their new research. Yeah. And what they okay. what they found was that the influence of like when you leave a voicemail as an emissions for you know you're phoning 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 when when do you leave messages for prospects? What they found was that um, if you leave a voicemail on the second and the fourth attempt to touch somebody, like to get in contact with somebody, that that had up to an 87 percent improvement in your um, contact rate with prospects. And so, uh, as an insight, you know, like our view is ultimately you're just trying to kind of perfect your system, right? Whether it's product or how you reach out to students or how you market your business or how you deliver it, it's we're all just trying to perfect a system that's going to generate a consistent result so we can plan around that. So, in in your perfecting your contact system, having the reps make that first attempt right away. Um, if they don't get somebody not leave a message, try back in an hour or so and then leave a message at that point is garners your best result. The second and the fourth attempt. So that that was an insight from Askew as well. The other one was um the folks at Norton Norris are doing some interesting research um combining uh neuro linguistic programming with um the admissions process. And folks, neurolinguistic programming is basically taking on this, um, understanding the subtle physical cues of people, um, right from the flush of the face, how people move their eyes, um, the voice intonation, and actually uh, marking and inventorying different physical cues people present so as you can communicate with them in a, a, a certain way. And it's um, pretty deep stuff and very interesting, but it's got an eye. It's an eye to uh, creating um, a better connection between the admissions rep and the prospective student. So I thought that was uh, some interesting work they're doing. I also found it interesting uh, the response that we were receiving from our uh, virtual admissions advisor uh, demonstration that we we gave. Uh, Shane, do you you want to um, just touch on that for a moment? Yeah. So, and I think these both speak to the same thing, which is ultimately, as a sector, given that the constraints we operate under are changing, we're finding trying to find way, new ways to kind of run our businesses and and do the work that we do. And we're trying to innovate in in how we execute. So the uh, work that uh, Gene Norris is doing to try to innovate around the admissions process and the work we're doing to try to innovate around student qualification is part of that. Uh, virtual admissions advisor is basically a, a lead qualification survey, and so uh, prospects are invited to go through it. They get a score on how um, kind of school-ready they are, so whether they're ready to go to school, and at the end of that, they're invited to make a tour request. The idea is if we can automate some of the, we, we characterize as the pre-admissions process, 
we can automate some of that and create a, a, a richer, deeper kind of experience for prospect prior to um, them contact, being in touch with the school, we can um, better qualify prospects and find the people that are most likely most interested in enrolling and differentiate uh, our, the schools using it from their competitors in the market. It's really just an attempt to um, add value at all stages of the kind of interaction between the school and the prospects. You know, that really brings me to a broad point, which I think is a really the overriding theme of this most recent conference at ABSCU, and that is there is a, there is a struggle. Um, there is a struggle going on within proprietary education um, that has been brought to bear by maybe a dozen publicly traded companies and it is a um, it is a, a a struggle between making a profit and getting return on investment for shareholders and being in it for what many call the right reason which is to um, enhance the quality of life for students uh, enhance um, help people turn their lives around um, and bring them to a higher stead in their lives with the byproduct being a surplus or a profit. And I think there was a telling comment regarding the Corinthian activity where they, um, the, the share, I think the share price was down around 26 cents or what have you. And, and there was a, basically a soft receivership negotiated and somebody had made the comment that, their shareholders will never support this. In other words, the people within a the shareholders within a publicly traded environment, um, many of them are passionate about schools, but many of them are just in it for a stock play to make a return on investment, a money play. And as a school owner, if if that's your prime driver, is to be in a, a money play, um, it's the wrong industry to be in. Because, you know, you can do very well financially, very well. But the the irony or the dichotomy in it all is if that is your primary driver to make a lot of money, you won't. Whereas if your primary driver is to help people and advance lives, then the irony of it is is you will do very well financially. So I think that maybe characterizes this kind of undercurrent of struggle in, inside the population of this conference this year, Shane. Yeah, I think, I think that's a really valid insight. Mm -hmm. The other highlight, actually, for me, was a question you posed in our talk um, on the, um, uh, the seven ways to improve the student experience talk. And the question you posed to the group was we sort of ran it as a workshop so everyone was involved in brainstorming ideas and sharing ideas. And you, you posed the question to the group, how do we make the admissions process, how do we laden value into that? So how do we make that admissions process worth $1,000 in value? It was kind of a rhetorical question meant to reframe it from a, a sales process or sales-oriented interaction to one where it's a... Um, uh, a clarifying um, value-laden pro process 
the, the, the byproduct of which is an enrollment. And I remember when we posed that question to the, to the group at the talk, it was very provocative and it got a lot of really interesting responses and a lot of people commented that they had never thought of it in that way. Yeah, so I guess really the, the way you would reframe that is if you had to, uh, if somebody came and swept up from above, say a regulator, and said, you have to provide $1,000 worth of legitimate value to a prospective student in the admissions process, that's a requirement of your license. You, and could you do it, like as of today? And, of course, yes, pretty much everybody except a guy from ECPI said, no, not a hope. And um, the, uh, in fact, they viewed the admissions thing as a takeaway. I'm taking people's money. I'm taking, it's like they are drawing, it's a net benefit for the school. But the guy from ECPI got up and said, no, we actually drive a tremendous amount of value into the admissions process, whether they become a student or not. And I thought that was a very interesting stance because he got up in front of the entire group and defended that whole notion. So, Shane, maybe that is really the, you know, kind of a key question to stay in because it really, at the end of the day, the regulators go away. The bureaucrats have nothing to bitch about if the schools are consistently exceeding expectations with students and ex- and prospective students and employers, for that matter. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? You started this. Sorry, I just jumped. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, yeah, no, I agree. It's it's like we we the theme that product is at the center of everything is not is not new. We've had many many conference calls on that topic, and I and I'm still not sure if people you know, largely understand it or get, get what we're trying to say on that. The, 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 the conflict that you articulated between kind of making money and giving value and money being a byproduct of the value is to me, is you identified the central struggle. And, and, and the rhetorical question, how do we give, you know, $1,000 of value in the admissions process is one just little piece of that. It's one little question. What I find really interesting is that almost universally, the the people that do understand that, the the schools that kind of operate under a a value construct versus a a short-term profitability construct, always do better. Always, always do better at the end of the day. You know, um, Dr. Joe Pace corroborated that with his research um, on organizational psychology. He he indicated that people that, that adopted that corporate attitude, if you will, um, mm-hmm. perform uh, performed other schools um, financially. Well, you know, it's interesting because you know we also we talk to lots of other vendors and and you know salespeople that work for other you know either competitors or other uh, vendors in the sector. And I'll tell you, that has come up over the year. It came up at AppSkew this year. It's come up in previous years that you have basically salespeople that 
you know, in the, in the bar, when in a moment of kind of truth and honesty, say, you know, I, I have a really hard time um, feeling enthusiastic about making another million dollars for my boss and my owners. You know, it doesn't really do it for me. And so, because they're operating in in organizations that there's not a higher kind of philosophical, I don't mandate or um, purpose. There's not a higher purpose being see, um, being served. It's strictly a financial purpose. And you know, they so you you buy you you can buy their loyalty through money, but ultimately they don't. You know, they're just in it for the money and they don't really feel connected to organizations. And as a result, you have turnover, and it's easier to lose staff because if someone will pay them a few bucks more, they'll jump ship in a heartbeat because that kind of moral center is not, um, uh, is not embraced or it's not, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, I'm going to jump in and clarify what you're saying. It's a very important point, and that and and folks, this is something that you can really move to. Um, is um, I would advise you to think about um, if somebody is driving primarily off money in the education field, which is an industry of um, improving lives and helping people get a leg up. There's something kind of pimpish about that energy, and and uh, and so again, um, if there's our admissions reps who are really passionate about helping people improve lives and counseling them to um, reach greater heights, the the money, the the decent income will follow, and when you when you feel good about yourself in terms of helping people around you. You feel like you're, as an individual, a net benefit to society, to the people that you're working with, the students. Um, that creates all kinds of positive energy, self-esteem, karma. You know, the all the major religions of the world speak to it. And the money is a byproduct. And, and I think... Um, That's all I have to say on that. I don't know how to really express it any other way, Shane. No, 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 that was good. Hey, we're almost out of time. I, I had one kind of final thought, and at the risk of being uh, partisan, so I'm, I'm apolitical, but the keynote was, uh, Jeb Bush did the keynote at the end of the conference. And, you know, politics aside, in that talk, he seemed to have a very good understanding of the challenges that the sector is facing, and a, uh, what I felt like was a kind of healthy perspective on the consequences of regulation and how overregulation creates, um, in a way, creates more problems than it solves. So, for whatever that's worth. He's a bright chap, that dude. He's, he's a well-spoken guy. And uh, politics aside, you'd have to appreciate the fact that he uh, had taken the time to think through his points of view. And he, he was cogent. And I thought it was like a little test run for a, like a presidential speech or some kind, kind of thing. He just uh, he really nailed some interesting points. Whether you're on his side or not, you have to admire the guy for thinking through his position. So, 
uh, yeah, he was just really well well spoken guy, and I think he was the right speaker for the conference given the the tone. So, uh, does anybody have any comments or questions they want to pop up about? We kind of pushed from Abskew to a deep seated philosophical stance on why business succeeds in education. Anybody uh, want to press star six? They can pipe up and, and join in with Shane and I. Uh, yeah, hi. Um, um, can you hear me? Sure yeah. can. Yeah, um, I had a quick question. My name is uh, Richard Kennedy. I wanted to ask about uh, how many attendees were at the conference uh, versus, uh, and maybe you know this as well, what the total number of members of APSCU is. Sure, I'll, I'll speak to that. There are 1,500 mem- members of APSCU, is my understanding. Uh, at the conference, um, those are school members, of which you know there are thousands and thousands of employees. And uh, at the conference, there were 1,100 people who were affiliated with vendors and 400 people affiliated with schools. Wow. So vir- virtually no school people. It was a big vendor love-in. It was crazy. Okay. Um, yeah, the other po- uh, point that I, or question and end point that I wanted to make was, I, I've always thought, uh, particularly since you're discussing APSCU, and I know that you guys work outside of the for-profit uh, venue as well, but... Um, Wait, hold on, Richard? Yeah. Rich, we yeah. don't. Oh, okay, you, pro- you only work with for-profit schools. That's correct, yes. Okay. Um, you know, so, well, that, that makes the, the, the point that I was going to make maybe a, a little more impactful. I wanted to ask you what you thought about the key differentiator between the for-profit schools and the uh, other players uh, is that, in my opinion, that it's the for-profit schools that really introduced and popularized uh, online education, and that all of, they were the early adopters, and that uh, not-for-profit schools kind of jumped into it uh, as an ad, later on when they realized uh, that that's the way that higher education was moving in general. And I wanted to ask if if there were any comments made at the conference about the importance of the online modality to the future of the for-profit schools because they were essentially the ones that invented it and introduced it. Great question. Shane, you want to start? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I can't think of a specific instance of the conference where that was addressed, though I'm sure it was. Um, I, I, I can kind of speak to it more broadly. I think the role that the career schools serve is as an early adopter or as innovators in general and so that isn't just limited to online though like the career schools really pioneered uh, new program areas to serve employer needs and I think the the you know online modality or other uh, hybrid ways of teaching people partly that's an outcome of efficiency Right, like, because like, if you think about it, the, the the new regulations are essentially a price control. You know, that's the the ones that are coming up now. And so, if you have to lower your price of your program, you have to, in order to turn a profit, you're going to have to find some efficiencies in delivery while still doing an awesome job, right? In order to have your expenses not exceed your revenue. And so, things like 
online or hybrid programs, I think in particular hybrid programs, are a way to reduce the cost of delivery of programs so you can maintain a profit. And I think the career schools are at the forefront of that because they're businesses and they, you know, they have a bottom line to meet. Uh, I think the career schools also, where, where they've really been the leaders and it's not acknowledged, is in um, outcomes and particularly in, in partnerships with employers and really being um, connected with the needs of employers in the, in the communities that they operate in. And that's the, uh, part of the reason the, the corporate schools are failing is that they, they're fundamentally they're not connected to the communities, and the, the regional uh, chains are. So, yeah, Shane, yeah. Um, along those lines, um, and uh, to put my, my response into Richard's question as well, nineteen ninety four. University of Phoenix was the first school to go online, so it was really an innovation of one school, and um, and their their whole mandate was to help people earn while they learn, and they started off as a career school offering nursing and firefighting and other programs, and then they they went and took on this crazy little online thing and. It was actually correspondence done through um, email is really the, what they did, and they used Outlook Express as their platform, and um, and people were posting their papers in an asynchronous way. Anyway, it was kind of early um, early days of online learning, and uh, that's what you know. Now they have what four hundred and thirty thousand students, I believe, something like that, and. They're a sizable entity, but they were the singular um, driver for online education, and so they are a proprietary school. But they are more offering traditional offerings, you know, baccalaureates and you know, masters in in education and stuff like that. And and so, and then guys like Jones and Western Governors, and and the, they started jumping in and competing and now and then that started branching into the career schools who are actually late into the game with online learning because so many so much of the of the career orientation uh, is tends to be clock hour kind of work right cosmetology work um, allied health work you're po- poking needles in people right. a lot of it initially they figured they couldn't do it that way but now they're getting innovative their phlebotomy courses are sending you know needles and dummies home to a person to work on at home and different things. Mm-hmm. Um, finally, like the originally Phoenix got their regional accreditation because University of Arizona and Arizona State said, we're not going to go into that, that kind of stuff. You know, we're, we just care about 18 to 22 year olds and you want to help 35 year olds. Go to it, and that's why they got their accreditation so soon. And of course, so they fractured the market, and then what happened was history. And now, of course, the the um, the public uh, not for profits are now dragging in, kind of late in the game as well. One quick story on that: we were uh, asked to give a talk um, for an engineering um, continuing education program, and and it was all about how historically the, the major schools, Berkeley, University of Georgia, U of T, all have their 
engineering programs, and they do their continuing ed for the engineers. And they wanted us to give a talk about how online was going to be the future. And so we came back and said, yeah, we'll give a talk to your engineering people. And and uh, we'll basically, what we plan to tell them is that their congenial, congenial little territorial arrangement that they have, uh, not formal or by any means, but is going to go out the window and it's going to become bloody. And um, second place is the first loser. Um, and so they came back and said, no, that's not an appropriate topic for this conference. Thank you. Goodbye. Uh, but now what's happened is that's extended. Um, Georgia Tech University have now come out with a fully online uh, master's in computer science. They're charging, I think it's $6,000 for a regionally accredited degree. And the com- competitors are selling a sit-in version for 40000 50000 bucks. Anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm talking a lot there, Shane. Uh, Richard, does that help a bit? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Oh, no. Hey, no, that's okay. Hey, Greg, I have to wind off the call. We've okay, Shane. Well, thank you so late, much. Yeah, um, uh, topic, and thanks for the question, Richard. Yes, absolutely. Um, okay, Shane, you bet. Have fun. Um, and any other questions uh, from folks on the call? No. Okay, so if anybody wants to uh, ha- have an extension, a one-to-one conversation with Shane or I about this topic, about the whole nation- notion of positioning your school um, correctly um, and the business outcomes of doing so, taking a courageous move like you know, putting the student ahead of the, the business model, um, you know, feel free to call us. Uh, we'll... I'll have Paul tee up a time. Um, if you want to have some free time with us, I'll just leave you guys a number. It's 250-888-7111. And the best thing to do is just text us. Just text 250-888-7111. And then we'll uh, book uh, some time with you and we'll have a good chat about it. Um, if there are any no other questions, I think what we'll do is it's over our time limit, so I, I'm sorry we've gone 13 minutes over. Um, hope you've gotten some, uh, something out of this, you guys. And we'll uh, see you again soon on another topic. All the best.